No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought their money for themselves, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard the, about these events. Will you pray with me? Lord, this morning we ask that you would teach us to understand your scriptures, even the scriptures that, that don't immediately uh, make sense. Lord, that, uh, that your words passed down would change our hearts, would help us to, to know you, uh, to love you, and to follow you. I pray that you'll be with Pastor John. Uh, this morning as he um, shares with us what he has learned from his um, reflections and meditations uh, on this story uh, from the book of Acts. Pray that you would bless his words. I pray that you give us the ears to hear uh, your voice um, in our hearts. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. What a precious passage of scripture. <laughs> this was actually the scripture the pastor used to preach at Emily and my wedding. Uh, so just a, a very meaningful and sweet passage of Scripture. It's kind of like as a child, you may memorize Psalm 23 or other passages. This is another one of those really sweet ones for me. Uh, how many of you would like to preach on this text? Uh, one, I, I love music. I love listening to music. And one of my favorite songwriters is named Ben Folds. And uh, Ben Folds has this live album where just before he explains this song uh, called Not the Same, he describes like what inspired it. He said one night he was at a party and his buddy uh, was tripping on acid and climbed up a tree, stayed up in the tree, tripping all night long. And when he came down the next morning, he was a born again Christian. <laughs> and he said, it's where religion and drugs meet back on the other side. Um, obviously not a KXOJ song, uh, but I really, really love the story. Because uh, it like totally weirded him out. Ben Folds is not a guy who loves Jesus, loves Jesus, he's not following Jesus, but he saw a dramatic and lasting life change in this dude that he'd been friends with who had a very weird conversion experience where he'd gone up on a tree high as a kite and came back down and he knew and loved Jesus and he gave, he's given the rest of his life to following Jesus. 
And what's, what's amazing is, is stories like this are not altogether unique. In fact, for the last 2,000 years, uh, the stories like this have been peppered all around the globe of, of crazy encounters uh, where people have met Jesus in a way that's beyond explanation, and it has changed their lives. And even now, uh, in, in the Middle East, Jesus is showing up in dreams of all kinds uh, to people who have never met a Christian, never met a missionary, and they're, they're, they, they've seen this man in white, the Messiah Jesus, and it's changed their life. And this morning in the text that we're looking at uh, in Acts, you know, most of the texts have been pretty like uh, encouraging and, and it's inspiring. This is a sobering text that we've seen. Uh, but in the text we've read, we just encountered three people who've had a radical life change uh, because they've met Jesus. You'll remember uh, we've been studying the book of Acts for the last six, seven weeks, something like that, and seeing the birth of the church. And last week we were talking about the compounding uh, effect of doing the next right thing. Now, the church was 120 people, and then all of a sudden it was 3,000 people, and then 5,000, 8, 9, 10,000 people. This amazing effect of, of rapid, explosive growth. And these three people who are mentioned in the text here, Barnabas, who was previously named Joseph, and Ananias and Sapphira were among those who had a conversion experience and came to follow Jesus, and they had a meaningful life change. The text tells us at the very beginning that all of the believers were of one heart and one mind, and that was demonstrated really practically by how they behaved as a community with regard to their finances. They were of such uh, unity that there were no needy people in the community. They were of such, such unity of mind and heart and finances that there were no needy persons among them. This is the demonstration of the power of God at work. Can you imagine what it would be like if everyone who followed Jesus gave so generously that people had never heard of a needy Christian? That a needy Christian was just like, that's just not a thing. That just doesn't exist. Uh, if Christians were so like bonkers generous, that, that, were, that was something that was unheard of in our world. Wouldn't that be amazing? It's hard to imagine because not only to, for, for that to happen would you need a conversion of the heart, you'd also need a conversion of the checkbook. And that is, that's where a lot of idolatry lies. That's where a lot of the real battleground for our faith is with the way that we spend our money. And money is one of those things that we all deal with every day and we think about every day. But if a pastor brings it up once, it's, why do you always talk about money? Uh, it, and it shows that there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of control, there's a lot embedded within the conversations about money for us that really needs to be confronted with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Um, this, was, this was the kind of thing that was happening in the church, people giving up uh, their, uh, their proceeds, their, their earnings, uh, so that there wouldn't be needy people among them. And it does seem to be the case, this is not um, out of the ordinary what happened with Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. They had pieces of property, and out of their own volition, they chose to sell it and give the proceeds to the church. It was not like by joining the church this was a requirement. This is just something that people did from time to time. And so uh, Barnabas certain did, certainly did this. Uh, people who, have, who had meaningful, who had a lot of money, who had significant means in the church, selling it and giving it to the church as a sign for them of their conversion, which reminds me of the story of Zacchaeus in the Gospels, where, uh, does anyone remember the song about Zacchaeus? He's a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the tree. He wanted to see Jesus. He was this chief tax collector uh, who had exploited a ton of people out of their money. Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today, and he goes to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus has a radical life change, and it's demonstrated, first of all, by the way that he uses his money. 
Zacchaeus says, if, if I've, if I've, uh, I'm going to give away half of my money to the poor, and if I've wronged anyone up to up four times over, I'm going to make it good. I'm going to make it right. And seeing how he changed his relationship with money, Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house. Because this was a dude who'd, who'd exploited tons of people for their wealth, for their money. He, he made his living off of exploiting others, and now he's gone the opposite direction, giving away half his wealth and making restitution four times over to the people that he's wronged. Truly, salvation has come to this house. Sacrificial generosity was the sign that God had finally gotten a hold of his heart. Jesus knew that our relationship with money was, was integral, was crucial, was so central to saving our souls. He told the story of the parable of the four sowers, about, of the sower, about the four soils. How he would distribute this in the story, this, this sower is throwing out seeds and it lands on all kinds of different soils. Some of it lands in good soil, some on the path, some among thorns, some among rocks. And he describes, used this story to describe different ways in which people responded to the gospel. But for the seed that fell among the thorns, Jesus said it's like those people who want to respond to the gospel. But the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out their response. And this is pretty, this is a key insight. This is important to remember from Jesus, the words of Jesus. Jesus does not say that it's bad to be wealthy, but he does say it's hard to be wealthy. It's not bad to be wealthy, but it is hard to be wealthy. This is what Jesus said in Luke 18, 24. He says, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It'd be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's not bad to be wealthy, but it is hard to be wealthy. It's hard because money has a way of getting a stranglehold on our hearts. And this is true whether you have a lot of money or a little money, and that's all socially defined. It's true whether you have a lot of money or a little money. Money has a way of getting a stranglehold on our hearts. But the call of God is to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, not just, not just the first 10% of it. He wants to surrender us to love Him with all of our hearts, which is why Jesus makes it an ultimatum. It's an either-or thing for Him. He says, Matthew 6, 24, He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says, You can't serve both God and money. He didn't say it's difficult to. He says it's impossible to. You cannot serve both God and money. That's the E. Stanley Jones quote we've shared the last couple of weeks, that uh, money makes a fantastic servant, but it is a cruel and horrible master. You can love one and hate the other. You can't serve two masters. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, didn't anybody watch the little video I sent out this week of the, the puppets or claymation or whatever it was? It was really a great way to make light of the story. It's, all, it's a terrifying story. Uh, and Ananias and Sapphira get a pretty bad rep for this, you know, because they died, because they didn't. Uh, they're kind of the villains in this story, and yet they did a beautiful thing, right? Ananias and Sapphira, of their own volition, took a piece of property that they owned, and they gave away most of it. We don't know what percentage they kept back, but they gave away most of it. Um, were they punished because they didn't give all of it? What was the crime here? No, it wasn't because they gave all of it. There's something more. Peter said to them, wasn't this money at your disposal before and after the sale? 
In other words, like, it's your call how you use this. You didn't have to give away 90% of it. You didn't have to give away 10% of it. This one was on you. Wasn't the money yours before and after? You got to decide how you were going to represent yourselves. How you, what were you going to do with it? Um, their crime was lying to the Holy Spirit about it. It's like they wanted to have their foot in both worlds where they could get the social credit for having given the money and participating. And, 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 and notice in this text, there's no mention of what was done with the money. So this was not about the pragmatism of like the people who missed out because you didn't give the last 10%. This was about the individual givers. This was about their relationship with money and their relationship with God. And they chose to misrepresent themselves and lie to the church and lie to the Holy Spirit. Why did they feel the need to lie? What, what, what was it that motivated that? Why did they feel the need to lie? Was it they didn't think they could keep up the lifestyle they'd grown accustomed to if they sold off this piece of property? Was it uh, they just wanted to keep their options open? It's like they wanted to have a, a diverse portfolio. Well, we're going to put 70% on Jesus, but if Jesus doesn't work out, we're going to put 30% on Jupiter or something, one of the Roman gods. Were they just playing the game? And so if one thing went down, they would have other options. Why do they feel the need to lie? There's a pretty noticeable gap in the story here. And this happens as you read Scripture. Gaps are those little, pe those little times where you don't have all the information. So a random gap. This is totally unimportant. I didn't plan on saying it. In the story of the, the, the prodigal son, the father and the two sons, a gap is, where's the mother? It, it's not important. But the mom's not in the story. Uh, it didn't serve Jesus' purposes. But here there's a meaningful gap where we're uncertain how these people died, which is a fairly meaningful gap in this instance. Uh, we don't see Peter explicitly, like, commanding their death. You know, in, in the next passage, it talks about people being raised from the dead as a result of the apostolic ministry. It's not Peter said, in the name of Jesus, die. That didn't happen. We also don't hear the voice of God thundering down from on high saying, you've lied to Peter, so you're out. There wasn't anything like that. We don't see an explicit explanation for how they died. I read one commentator who, said, who suggested that maybe they died because of a cardiac event. They were like called out on the spot, and it was just so shocking and gruesome to them that they died on the spot. Um, but I think it's fair to say that it's not safe to lie to God. We can say that much. Uh, we don't know if it was Peter, we don't know if it was the voice of God, but we can see clearly uh, that's not a safe thing to do. Uh, to lie to God, to lie to your brother and sister in Christ, it makes sense why so often in the New Testament there's a call to be truth-tellers in the church. Uh, lying to God, and I think especially about our relationship with money, because that's the one thing that we're so tempted to serve other than God. Lying, especially about our relationship with money, is not a safe practice. And I think you could probably say it was an effective deterrent for the church. You're like, I don't think there's another story in the book of Acts about people lying about giving to the, to the church, like misrepresenting their generosity to God. It was a fairly effective deterrent. But embedded in all of this is the conversation about God, church, uh, money, and us. And it can be a very stressful conversation. Often uh, pastors talk about the tithe, um, and, and in all candor, sometimes I think you're just worried about the budget. That's why you talk about tithes, tithing so much. And I believe in tithing. Uh, I had my first job in seventh grade working for Catering Connection, 
And my folks were, I, like, I just knew tithing is what we do. So because my folks did it, from my first paycheck on, I tithed because that was normal for me. I believe in t- the practice of tithing. But you may be relieved to know that I actually don't think that the New Testament demands that of us. I actually don't think the New Testament demands tithing of us. You may be less relieved to know that I think the demand is much greater, much, much greater uh, than that. The invitation to follow Jesus is exclusive and all-encompassing and costly. And the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they didn't surrender the first 10% of God, not that they wouldn't trust the first 10% of their wealth to God, it's they wouldn't trust Him with the last 10% of it. In their hearts, they needed to keep their options open, and so they lied to themselves, to the community, and to God. And it makes me so sad for Ananias and Sapphira, because what if they hadn't done this? What if they hadn't lied to themselves and to the community and to God? Barnabas, you know, we see his story briefly in this passage. Barnabas, and we're reading a little bit into the narrative here, but he had a name change. He was Joseph. And then he became Barnabas. And and often when there are name changes in the Bible, there's been a dramatic change of heart. Jacob goes to Israel. Abram goes to Abraham. Sarai goes to Sarah. There's been a a change. So we can construct a bit of a narrative that Barnabas was a guy who met Jesus and it changed his life. And we see the evidence of that by his generosity. How he gave this property that he owned, he gave all of the proceeds to the ministry of the church, the work of the church. And Barnabas, we'll we'll study his story as we continue through Acts during the summer, Barnabas was instrumental in in the formation of the church. When Paul, who was previously known as Saul and was someone who was systematically hunting down Christians, encountered the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, God sent Barnabas to Saul. He was freaked out because he was afraid he was going to get killed for doing it. God sent Barnabas to Saul, and and Barnabas was there and nurturing him and advocating for him with the rest of the church, saying, no, we've got to, this guy's on our team. We need to be open-armed with this guy. You think, what if Barnabas hadn't been around? Would we have lost most of the New Testament? What if Barnabas hadn't, hadn't given generously? There's a whole narrative that would have disappeared, and there's a whole narrative that we don't have the opportunity to learn because of Ananias and Sapphira. It makes me sad for them. And it's not about the money. It's not about the pragmatism of the money. It's they didn't trust God with that last 10% of their wealth. They weren't ready to say, I'm all in in following Jesus, and it cost them. What did they miss out on? What did we miss out on? And we'll never know. Falling in love with money does really harmful things to our soul. Jesus talked about it a ton. Paul talked about it a ton. We see this in Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter, 1 Timothy 6. He said, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's a gateway drug for all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says fairly explicitly, loving money is a temptation, it's a trap, and I'm hesitating to do the voice of Admiral Akbar. but those of you who know what I'm talking about, you can imagine what I would say right now. Falling in love with money is a trap. It leads to foolish and harmful things. It leads to ruin and destruction, falling in love with money. 
And knowing its danger, uh, Paul says to Timothy, he said, flee, you man of God, flee from all of this. And there are two things that you can do. He says this, here's how you flee. The first thing is, is to cultivate contentment. Paul says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. You're wandering off and doing all kinds of things trying to get money because you want to gain it. But don't you get it? Godliness with contentment is itself wealth. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about the stupid things that you have done in your life. Pick a category. At one level or another, it was tied to a lack of contentment. You think about, uh, you know, in, in, when there's a, a adultery in marriage, there's a certain amount of discontentment with the relationship that causes eyes to wander and hearts to wander. You think about stealing, there's a certain amount of discontentment, a lack of gratitude that leads us to do harmful and foolish things. At the core of a lot of our rebellion, a lot of our sin is discontentment. Go to Adam and Eve, discontent with what they believed uh, they had access to, the information they had, they wandered. If you want to be, uh, guard yourself against temptation, especially in the area of our finances, the Apostle Paul said to cultivate contentment. The other thing is this, is, is to put your hope in God. Uh, well, I'm going to come back to that. Uh, there was a pastor at Asbury um, who uh, left last year to go pastor in Arkansas, Jim Linderman, who's just awesome, awesome guy. And Jim tells a story about one day he was driving down the road and he drove just a jalopy of a car. And he was angry about the fact that he was driving a jalopy of a car. And, and just kind of whining to God about this car that he was driving, and he had a, a moment of clarity where he said, God, if, I'm, if you're not going to give me a new car, I need you to turn my wanter down because I really want a new car. And Jim remembers exactly where he was on the highway when he felt like God went like this. He just turned his wanter down. And it was, it was like that for him, that God changed his desires. So he didn't just thirst and lust after a nicer car. God changed my desires. Effectively, he cultivated contentment with his relationship with his car in that moment. And the second thing was was to put your hope in God, and it's demonstrated by radical and sacrificial generosity. This is what Paul said still in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said to Timothy, "...command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant." nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Then he gets explicit. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and generous and willing to share. And so as we think about our relationship with money, which all of us have one, and it's so central as we've seen in the Scriptures to, to our relationship with God. Are we going to trust Him? Are we going to trust in wealth? There are a couple of questions that we could ask as we think through our relationship with money and with God. The first one is this, and it's more general. Have I surrendered my life to Christ, or am I hoarding parts for myself? And, and maybe it's not money. Maybe it's like, uh, God, you can, you can confront me on anything except for that thing, except for my unforgiveness against that family member. You can confront me on anything, but leave my sexuality alone. You can confront me on anything. My whole life is yours, except for this one little thing that, like, that's nobody's business, including yours. Have I surrendered? Have you surrendered your entire life to Christ? Or are you holding back part for yourself? 
Another question that's more broad, and this, is, this, this question reframes it from what percentage of our wealth should we give away. It's, it's a broader question. How can I most faithfully steward the resources that have been entrusted to me? How can I most faithfully steward the resources that have been entrusted to me? That certainly includes our financial resources, but that includes our time, includes our physical assets. You know, if it's a car, if it's a house, if it's, if it's a word of encouragement, how can you most faithfully steward the resources, your words that God has given you? Another question, what practical steps do I need to take to submit my finances to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Your relationship with money, where are, those, where are those last little corners that you're just hoping no one sees and God doesn't see? Uh, Todd and I redid the floors in our office a couple of weeks ago, and by the time we got to the last corner, we were fairly tired. And there was this, and it was a little bit complicated cutting. We were using these like vinyl fake wood things. It looks great. But uh, there's this little section behind the door that's like this big, and we thought, we don't have the energy, we're going to leave it, and we'll always remember how ugly the floors used to be. What are those little parts of you that you've surrendered everything in your finances, you've, you've trusted Him with everything, except that little tiny piece behind the door that no one else can see? What practical steps do I need to take to submit my finances to the Lordship of Jesus? And then there's just an imaginative question. Like Ananias and Sapphira, what if I trusted God fully to meet my needs? What if I surrendered the last 10% of my life to Him? What could happen? Uh, Donald Miller, who's a great author, wrote a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And he's got this great little uh, section I want to read to you. The book's all about narrative, about story, and how our life is like a story. He said, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put a record on to think about the story you'd just seen. The truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie a week later, except you'd feel robbed and want your money back. Nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to be meaningful. The truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make a life meaningful either. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if anyone loses their life, puts it all on the line for my sake, you're going to find it. Or as Paul said, you're going to take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know what we're made of. You know that we live in a culture where currency is a reality. And if we have this currency, we can see how to meet our needs. If we have money in our account, if we have cash in our pocket, we can buy things at the grocery store that day. You understand that this is how our world works. And yet you also want us to understand that you're a loving father who provides for his children. That you want not 1% or 10% or 50% of us, but you want all of us. And you're not a bad father who's going who's gonna to leave us to fend for ourselves. You invite us to entrust you with our whole lives. But to do that, we need, we need your help. How hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
And people say, who then can be saved? And you said, with God, it's possible. Help us to trust, Lord Jesus, that you have our best interest at heart. That it's not that you're trying to get something from us, that you have something for us. And thank you for showing us forever your generosity in sending Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, entrusted him fully to this great work, that whoever believed in him would not perish but find eternal life. Jesus, help your church, help us to be people of radical generosity who courageously confront the idolatry of wealth in our own hearts and together band together, made a one mind and one heart by the work of the Spirit. And may we, first of all, surrender ourselves and experience your joy, but then together by pooling our resources, we might combat hunger, poverty, and injustice in our world and do a good and meaningful work, the kind of renewal that the world so longs to see. Well, thank you for the start, the first word that you got in in Jesus. Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing to save us, for us, for the life of the world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.